my gosh. So I put on, uh, if you have any questions for you on my Instagram, time, time to ask him. The first question I got was, how does he like to spend his Easter? <laughs> I for, totally forgot until just now that it was Easter. That's Easter. It's Easter Sunday. <laughs> this is what we're doing. I like so to thank spend, you. Uh, spend Easter hanging out with, uh, with a friend and a robot. Yeah, I'm going to actually, I'm posting that right now. Love it. Happy Easter. Um, so what if you could talk about anything, what would you talk about? Um, what did you imagine we were going to talk about? I'm kind of curious what the sort of moment you came to in your life where you sort of decided that design was going to be your path. That's funny. You, you thought we were going to talk about me? Yeah. <laughs> like we we have phases we we both talked about this we like like people that have phases they're like oh there was a time that they were like going to be professional skiers and then all of a sudden they like found something else and they forget that they ever skied we're both kind of those people right absolutely you say you fit in that category absolutely um but so yeah i think design was just it kind of showed up when i needed i had a an appetite for finding a phase a new phase i actually just got out of like trying to kind of pursue a medical degree uh-huh. um, and just finding out that I am a wired magazine level scientist and that I really appreciate the idea of science, really appreciate the idea of organic chemistry, but do I want to have my livelihood, my ability to graduate college dependent on my ability to understand those things at an intimate level? No, I do not. It was not very fulfilling for me. Right. Um, and I actually ended up I was going to a study abroad um, to Taiwan one semester while I was at school. And that was the only thing keeping me interested. It was, and it was kind of a thing to like go kind of study Eastern medicine culture. The, the, and not like in, a, in a, like a hocus pocus sense, but like understand like how medical care is distributed in Asian cultures huh. um, and see if there's anything to learn. And I thought that was really fascinating, really interesting. Canceled. And then I was left with like, oh, crap, I only have another semester of school to look forward to. And I was not looking forward to that at all. I sat down at my computer, went through the course catalog, and kind of had this moments where I just like, I just kind of forgot everything that I was planning on doing or anything that I felt like I was supposed to. It was kind of this moment of clarity where I just like, went through my catalog, I'm like, I'm only signing up for classes that I want to take. Right on. And, and I only plan on doing that for a semester. I just needed that semester to like find my footing as a student. Um, when I looked up like two hours later, I had completely overhauled my course, my class schedule that semester. And it was all creative classes. And I had kind of promised myself a few years earlier that I would not be a professional creative and why is that i don't know why i think it was just i think it was the pressure to be something uh i didn't want to be a bum i think it really came down to that i didn't want to disappoint my parents i didn't want to be a bum and to me artists were bums um and they're always hungry and just you know and they were self-indulgent and they just weren't really contributing much 
I had that very stereotypical conservative mindset on what creatives were. And when I looked at my course catalog or my, my schedule redesign, it was all creative classes. And I was stoked. I couldn't wait for that semester. And I was ashamed, embarrassed of it, but I was just like, I just couldn't do anything else. So I did it. One of the classes I took um, was a typography class. And the rest were like illustration primarily. Uh-huh. I had accidentally taken a typography class because it was a prereq for some like digital painting, digital illustration or advertising, something other class that I was way more interested in. Took typography the first week I was in the typography class. I'm like, this is boring as shit. I can't believe anybody. There's an entire class. Class. I mean, I, at the time I was like amazed there was an entire semester dedicated to typography. <laughs> right. That was a mind blowing to me, much less that there was an entire field and uh, master's degrees and everything. I had no concept of that. That was the first week. The second week, I was like, can I make a living doing this? Because this is all I want to do for the rest of my life. Typography just grabbed me. I loved it. I was stoked on it. Um, and that obsession just kept kind of growing for the rest of that semester. Um, it's one of those arts, too. Typography is one of those arts that. It just seems, from the outside looking in, so simple. Totally. It, it is so complex, and it is so powerful. Uh, incredibly. And I loved its sneaky nature. I loved how sneaky it was. It was just like, this was a, I loved it, too, that it was just an entire, it was almost like the Matrix, not to get not to get too out, outlandish about it, but, like, it was being woken up to a world that was always, always around me, and I just saw it for the first time, and once my eyes were open to it, the world just lit up. Billboards lit up. Cars, uh, license plates built up. Everything was alive around me and, and grabbing my attention in a totally new way. The world just revealed itself to me. Um, and the idea that I could very sneakily have a kind of impact on that and be a part of these people that kind of color the landscape of human-made things was really thrilling. I, I wanted to be that. And not only that, but I tend to be drawn towards things because of the people involved. And like uh, people who talked about typography and we'd watched a few documentaries, watched, I remember during that semester we watched, uh, this is gonna date me, but we watched Helvetica. Helvetica, yep. Yep, which is what everybody, everyone's kind of touch point with typography. And that blew my mind, but what really stood out to me is how articulate and intelligent all of those people in that documentary seemed to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I want to hang out with these dudes. Right. And so that really, and not to go into the rest of the story, but that was my introduction to design. And then from that point was, that was discovering the world of this thing called design. And then it was just a, a matter of finding my spot in that world, which I don't even know if I for sure have done. But I, I tend to, uh, I've tended to in my career gravitate towards industrial design. And that's what I ended up studying. I thought I was going to do graphic design and I pivoted on that too. But, but yeah, that was, that was kind of my, my conversion story. Right. That's my discovery story. What's yours? Um, well, it's kind of interesting. So growing up in a sort of traditional school system, yeah, I just absolutely hated it. It was just so terrible with school. Oh, you hated school. School. Yeah. Yeah. Just idea of sort of, um, sitting in a, you know, in front of a board, learning these sort of abstract lessons, 
sitting in one place sitting in one place periods of time just um and in a lot of ways i I almost feel like uh, in a lot of ways these sort of traditional school systems do a disservice to a lot of really brilliant creative kids but my my first sort of um introduction was actually in college where um, i enrolled in architecture and this was sort of the first time where sort of success in a class was based on sort of being creative um, and dreaming up concepts and working out these problems sort of spatially and sort of just like accessing this just part of my my brain that I honestly just am built for. Yeah. And so it was just this strange feeling where school was just always this thing that was I had to fight. Right. And for the first time, it was just sort of like this new world of thriving and became so engaged with school, um, you know, graduated, finished, like went on to get a master's, you know, continued doing school um, after kind of, you know, being this kid that was barely, barely, barely just getting by. But, um, you know, I think just the, the, you know, so I studied architecture in in undergrad and um, it just was such a kind of beautiful discipline and I think it was really interesting for me as sort of a young architecture student we were talking previously about sort of like drawing and 3D right. modeling and um, you know I immediately sort of skipped the drawing classes and went straight yeah. to the computer yeah um, and it was just so interesting to sort of have this 3D model that you could just spin around and you could render it and just view it you know in this sort of photorealistic fashion and then you could export that and 3D print it. And they're all just these sort of just such precise representations. of. Oh, it's so satisfying. It's just unbelievable. And um, so that was sort of, um, I think, just the process in itself was just exhilarating. And, um, you know, the, and I think it's just, it's, it's kind of fascinating as well, like, to think about creatives as a whole and the value of creatives, I think. I see now um, yeah. and, and how they're sort of positioned in companies and sort of the su- success of companies based off of the sort of create creative, their creative makeup. Right. Right. And the people involved. And I think that's just a really, really interesting trend. And it's such a, it's an amazing time to be a designer. I think it's like, one yeah, of the I think we, we were enjoying a, a validity within the corporate sphere that we've not had. Absolutely. And it's, I, and it's I, kinda nice. yeah. And I, and I wonder, you know, thinking back on, sort of school and chemistry and all of the sort of, you know, like the basic sciences and the things that you learn growing up. And um, it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about the impact of design on society, but how, how introduced to, to design are you as sort of a student in high school, right? Yeah, not, it doesn't zero, exist, does right? not exist. And think about how impactful it is sort of to society and, and where we're heading and yeah. um, both in terms of, um, just society and how society works, our infrastructure and, and all that, and then also the sort of economic force right, yeah. behind the companies that are sort of design-driven, right? Um, and then sort of their whole success, and it's just, it's, it's really interesting. It feels like it should have more weight. Like uh, in, in our academic system or yeah. just in, in yep. general? Yeah, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of torn on it because... <clears throat> I'm kind of an interesting designer in the fact that sometimes I think it shouldn't be a career that exists at all. And that if everybody were just better at having a design sensibility, it wouldn't necessarily need to. Um, the fact that we have to have these people that are hyper-specialized at design and making correct decisions with designing products seems kind of perverse. Cause like who designed 
the things that are like the best designed don't have a designer. Like who designed the paperclip or the skateboard or the like, you know, these really, it's, it's like when things are really well designed, it's the constraints of the task that they're meant to perform that really does all the designing. Um, the problem is like, I feel like my job mainly as a designer is to tell people to lay off making design decisions and just let the thing work. Um, stop trying to stack design on top of a solution that is already designed by the constraints of the problem. Um, don't make the logo bigger. Don't, you know, don't paint this red. Don't put print. Like, no, just we solved the problem and the result looks like something that solved the problem. Let's keep it that way rather yeah. than trying to style it. And I think that's so, so interesting because to me, those are the most beautiful things. Totally. Well, right? 100%. That's like why sometimes like, you know, airplanes um, and military tanks and like things that are so uh, constrained to the, the, the their task or like the laws of nature end up being the most beautiful things. Yeah, and even I've, I would consider, you know, typography in that group, right? Yeah. Just sort of the function of typography is so incredibly beautiful, but yeah. it has such a um, sort of strong function and meaning, meaning behind it. Yeah. Um, Amen. I mean, to go back a little bit, I, I, I was kind of like, as you were talking about your, your experience, like going through college and like the, the conversion from being like someone who just barely gets by to somebody that's like an overachiever at school. Um, definitely could see that. And I think a lot of creatives can relate to that. There's something, I mean, do you think, how much do you think that is, has to do with the fact that you have, I think an athletic background or a performance or competitive background, let's say that. Like, I, that's something we talked about earlier that we're both very competitive people. And it's suddenly finding like a merit based education system where like you sunk or swim based on your ability, right? Rather than like, okay, if you jump over this very low hurdle with writing a paper, you get, you pass. Right. But it's like now it's like, no, no, no. I know that this paper or this, this portfolio piece is amazing and I'm going to get rewarded by that or I'm going to punish for it if it's really shit. Absolutely. And I think um, sort of with anything creative too, you really have to put yourself out there. Yeah, it's very right? vulnerable. Very, very, very vulnerable. And, and when you're in that sort of situation, um, it's sort of a forcing function to get you to work your ass off. Totally. Right. It, it holds you accountable so hard. I mean, I, to this day, I still get discouraged when I look at a, right. look at something I designed and it's like looking in the most brutal mirror ever. I like look at this thing and I'm like, oh shit. Now everybody who looks at this knows that I am lazy or <laughs> knows that that's a really general thing, but knows that I am, that I'm impatient or I, I jumped this part of the process. Like I feel like my personality flaws are just so present in that thing right? in a way that just is uh, terrifying. But that terror is what gets me out of the bed in the morning. Absolutely. And I think part of that terror, one thing I would add to that is, um, you know, through a design critique is also just not properly understanding the problem. Right. right. And so it's like you really have to understand kind of the system to which you're designing for. Um, and if there's sort of any gaps, it's, it's just going to be so apparent in the design. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least to us. I'm not sure how actually apparent it is to everybody else, but it feels very scary feels very accountable and it, and, it, and it pushes you. So how does that go into like, how did you go from, you know, studying architecture 
to having a robot in your living room because I think that <laughs> big <laughs> giant uh, for the people who haven't seen pictures of what we posted um, you have a massive what what is this robot arm first of all it's a uh, Kuka Agilis uh, um, KR10 1100 so it looks like a big robot arm like you would see in like the movies assembling a car mm -hmm. Alpha arms, is that like the, the appropriate term for those? Um, they just call them six-axis industrial arms. Um, and this is a, KUKA is a German, uh, German company. Of course it is. Yep. And they, um, yeah, so they're using these on Tesla and they're using them for all kinds of different, different purposes. So speaking of machines that are beautiful based on the fact they were mostly engineered around the function and constraints rather than styled. Right. Really beautiful thing. But you know, it's, it's interesting too. The Germans kind of have this... It's sort of aesthetic and function, right? Right. Um, I love anything sort of German engineered. It's just God. They make some of the most beautiful stuff, and yeah. it's, it goes back to that, the sort of the the constraint and what what the sort of um, the sort of intent of the of the design sets the the aesthetic of it, and it's. No, you're absolutely right. That's a. I I can't. Every, I've only been here a couple times visiting your place, and it is. So beautiful. Um, yeah, but okay, to, to reemphasize in case people miss that, we are currently sitting on the stage of this robotic arm, which is, again, in your living room. And it is massive. How tall is that thing fully stretched out? Um, it's about four feet. That's like, not four feet. If you stretched it on from oh, end to end, it would be taller than me. Oh, yeah. It'd be a, no, it's about, actually, it'd be about five feet. Oh, um, really? Yeah, with the base. But this is basically the smallest or the largest of the smaller robots so the agilis series are the the smaller robots but they're very very fast and very very precise yeah um but I'll, but I'll go back that. Uh, but i'll go back to your uh, question about sort of how we ended up sort of having this conversation sitting on a table with the robot right yeah. now and that sort of journey um and as strange as it seems the path was kind of natural in a lot of ways yeah. um so i think you know one thing that's really interesting is is design tools. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, our tools in a lot of ways define sort of what we, what we do, what we produce. Um, and I've always been sort of obsessed with tools. And I've, I've always felt like I was an okay designer, but by really mastering my tools, I could be a great designer yeah. by really leveraging, you know, the power of, of machines and, um, the power of te technology and tools. So, um, you know, again, right off the bat, it was instead of sketching, it was 3D rendering and 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 3D modeling. So those are the tools, because I mean, yeah, I think like, each designer kind of yeah. gravitates to towards their like quiver. Right, right. And that, that and then the, for you. And the that yeah, that and then sort of just the dopamine rush of spinning a 3D model around. Oh my right? gosh, yeah. It's just something that's just yeah. I think incredible. that's for I think that's a good litmus test to find out if you are interested in design or objects or whatever. If if you're somebody who thinks in three dimensions or thinks about three D objects, like you watch those people CAD their first thing, like that, like you have them like CAD a Lego piece or something or something really simple. And if you're that kind of person, that is incredibly thrilling. Right. If you're not that kind of person, you're like, what is the big deal here? Right. So that can be like a good indicator. Right, where where you should be spending your time. Absolutely. So you're one of those people that saw CAD modeling and you just it blew your mind. Blew my mind, yeah, absolutely. And so, kind of, eventually you'll start to use these tools, but you kind of exhaust 
what they can do. And that's when I started learning about sort of SDKs and scripting and kind of getting underneath the hood mm. to be able to sort of modify these tools or extend them or sort of do different things with them. Um, so For what purpose? Like what, what is the benefit of that necessarily? Like what are you trying yeah. to accomplish? Yeah, so a couple of things. So, you know, in the architecture, when I started in architecture, we would, I worked for uh, the Yazdani studio in Los Angeles, a um, really amazing award-winning uh, architect, Merdad Yazdani, and we would have a very iterative process where we would essentially be uh, modeling these different sort of design concepts. And they actually call, they used to call him the seagull, Merdad the seagull, okay. because we'd do a ton of work, and then he would fly in. He was never really around. He would fly in, and then he would shit on everything, and then fly out. Oh yeah, that is a great. Th I yeah. Oh man, every every manager's a seagull now that you say that. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I sort of learned to to script and basically to kind of parameterize all these three D models. So when Radab would kind of when the seagull would fly in, you'd be able to sort of move these parameters around and change this model without having to sort of like rebuild. Everything. Okay, so you're kind of, right. you're anticipating the seagull. Right. You kind of design things in a modular, flexible way. Exactly, right. Interesting. And, and, and that also helps to create iterations to learn from your designs as well. You know, it wasn't purely about sort of like solving the, the wants of the boss, but um, it just was a really powerful kind of workflow. Um, but then sort of, um, you know, experimenting with Scripting and parameterizing, there's just this amazing, like aesthetic, like aesthetic quality that sort of emerged from this sort of generative scripting. And yeah. for those don't, for those aren't familiar with generative design or scripting, it's really you're creating sort of a rule system. Um, yep. And it's you can do some really powerful things. So the first time you sort of see a point attractor where you can have a point out in space and it calculates the distance between a bunch of objects and then they all get scaled and you can create these amazing like beautiful gradients and right. um, these sort of logical systems. Um, and so the first time um, sort of learning to script and sort of having power of the 3D tool to be able to generate these aesthetics that again, give you that sort of like dopamine rush and that excitement yeah. to just like keep pushing and keep exploring it. So it's sort of like new horizon with kind of the tool. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about having that generative design process, a mutual affection for it. And I, for me, I just love that it kind of actually, as a control freak, it kind of actually ties my hands a little bit to where I can't control every output. It's just I can, I can make the rules, but then it's you throw the energy into this system and what comes out is not always, well, there's a, there's a distance between what you put in and what comes out. And it's not always, it's not predictable. Right. Um, Within reason, it's not predictable. The outcome often surprises you, and and it feels a little bit like magic, and it's it's very fun. Right, right. It's a yeah, it's a powerful sort of experience to um, sort of create generative forms. It's almost like another way I would describe it is, I think of it almost as um, as orchestrating, right, versus playing an individual instrument. Yeah, right? I could see that for sure. So you sort of, yeah, so you're, you're controlling just this whole system. Yeah. Right, with these rules. But, but you're, not pull, you're not sort of plucking every string or playing every chord. Right. right. You know, there was an artist I went and saw in a museum once, and he's probably super famous, and I'm probably showing my ignorance by not knowing his name, but he created furniture by taking blocks of edible material and putting 
animal food on the parts of the blocks that he wanted removed and then putting it in a cage with a bunch of rats. I love that. So the rats would eat away at the food and the result would be a chair. It was what remained. Right. And the form of the chair, there's no way to predict that. There's too many variables. There's too, many cha- there's too much chaos in there. Um, but there's something really cool about that, that he didn't have ultimate control. And the result is something way more interesting than he could have made if he just took a knife and whittled away at it. Yep. And that, that to me is generative design, except without, it's not rats, they're algorithms. Right. And I think that's, a, that's an amazing um, example. Another one that's of that sort of light that I, that I just absolutely love. There's an artist by the name of Aaron Coblin. Okay. And he's really amazing where he sort of does this technology-based art installations, but he includes this sort of human factor to it that's just really amazing. And when, when you sort of use too much technology as the tool and you don't have that sort of other factor, it just be, can become so cold and almost stale right. in a lot of ways. And so I think straight, like really making that magic has to have that sort of like organic human nature to it. And so one of the projects he did that stands out that's similar um, is conceptually is very similar is he made a music video for Johnny Cash. Really? And so what he did was basically take a series of frames from the Johnny Cash video and he gave, he created a sort of web-based drawing tool, sketching tool, and he gave a frame to every fan that oh, wanted to wait, participate. I've seen this, yeah. Yeah, and so he basically will sketch out, each fan sketches out each frame. Yeah. But they basically redraw what they're seeing. They're redrawing basically a photograph, but they're using, you know, like a crosshatch or they're using, you know, a certain type of shading sort of um, method that, that, you know, they're, they're comfortable with. Um, but the parameters that sort of keep everything similar is that the sort of brush strokes are varied. So it's only black and white and there's only a certain range. So you can have variation. Totally. So it's almost like that is the generative Those are the parameters. Parameters is yeah. this drawing tool. And they're only did. drawing one frame, and the frames are in sequence, in a predictable sequence, but the line quality and the ability is shifts. Exactly, and it's so beautiful, and it ties in sort of this meaning between, also these are all fans, right? And it's right. sort of like their vision, their representation, but one at a time. So you see the variation, but then it also has this consistency, right? And, and it has such a human aspect to it that's just so incredibly 100%. beautiful so to back to your story that got your rocks off with generative design right design in general right that's design what appealed to you yeah and so i was um you know practicing architecture and i but i was also very into the tech side of things right because yeah. now i'm sort of scripting and just really understanding sort of the power of um, computers and tools and machines and digital fabrication um, and so then I started, I wanted to kind of have a little bit deeper dive into the tech side of things. So I started studying computer science at night. Um, and so I was um, going to a community college um, in uh, Santa Monica. And Hustling. I was super broke. I had no car in LA, taking oh, the bus. What? Nobody takes the bus in LA. No. <laughs> Nobody doesn't have a car in LA. It was crazy. I mean, I had a car at one point, but then I was just so broke that I just could not afford to get a fix. So off to the bus. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. And for those that don't know, you know, when you're an architect starting off, it's like, you're making nothing. Yeah. You're working crazy, crazy hours. Um, yeah. So I was, I would go to work and then jump on the bus and then go to Santa Monica, um, study computer science and then come back 
work more and then sort of leave around kind of like midnight one every, pretty much every night. And I really got into sort of the tech, the real technology side of things. So um, just learning about languages, learning about hardware, learning about all these different things, experimenting with Arduinos and microcontrollers and all that kind of stuff um, in sort of a playful, fun way. And at that point, I realized, okay, I think, you know, I spent four years as an architectural designer and it was like, I think it's time, you know, to move on to the next thing. So then I went to grad school and I studied human-computer interaction at Carnegie Mellon. And so it was really about, um, I really at that point wanted to make software and tools. I got so into the tools, I wanted to design yeah, the tools and the UX of the tools themselves, right? Um, so, but while I was at Carnegie Mellon, uh, they have a really amazing robotics program there. And um, I saw, I walked, actually saw, and I, I was walking by and I saw they had one of these ABB six-axis robotic arms. Hmm. And you just look at that thing, and it's just, they're really, really powerful machines, and they just have a presence. And um, I wanted to learn a little bit more about how you sort of control these things and how they work. And at Carnegie Mellon, anyone can take a class in any department at any level. Um, and so I enrolled in a digital fabrication course in the architecture school. Cool. And I realized that controlling these machines was actually the same process I was using for designing buildings, doing generative design for architecture. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I was really uh, surprised to look at your screen when I first came here and see that the process was built in Grasshopper yeah, it was and grass Rhino. And yeah, it's just like, and that's how you're programming the behavior yeah, of this machine. Exactly. So for those that don't, aren't familiar with Grasshopper, it's a, um, it's a visual algorithm editor or programming language where you have these sort of nodes, which are algorithms, and you sort of wire them up to create logic. Um, and so this, this is one of the tools I was using in, in architecture to design um, a building facade. So you may have you know, thousands of pieces of glass for a skyscraper design. So you would parameterize up you know, those windows and generate that design. And if you think about that, when you're 3D modeling, you have Cartesian planes in space, right? right? X, Y, Z. X, Y, and Z in space, and you have a lot of them because every piece of geometry has to have some coordinate system to which you're right. building off of. The thing about a robot moving in space is it's, if a robot is going to sort of pick up a block and move it to another location and then pick up another one and move it to sort of a second and third location, you're really just dealing with Cartesian planes in space. Okay, yeah, Right. And sure. You need to just generate those Cartesian planes in space, and then the robot will move through that path, right? And then there's some logic, you know, pick up, put down, et cetera, et cetera. Really? So are you not, if you're not like actually being... Um very didactic about the path that the robot travels. You just tell it you need to get from point A to point B and it finds its own path? Um, yes, and it does it in a couple different ways depending on how you describe, you know, depending on how you sort of um, define that. Um, but if you're going to have a robot sort of uh, do some CNC milling like, like these back here, yeah. um, then you essentially have you know, the, the tool path and then you just have tons of planes on that tool right. path and it's just hitting all of them really tight in like a really tight sort of fashion and then it's going to create sort of a smooth, a smooth line. Which I can't believe that. we haven't talked about because uh, we might not be ready for this podcast because it's going to get real detailed and nerdy. Yeah. But I would love to see kind of the tool pass for this robot arm versus a normal X, Y, Z axis uh, yep. milling machine. Right, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I bet and that would be, so, I'm so fascinated. I'm so yeah. interested in that. Well, I'd love to get into it. Um, so, but I think the, the interesting thing was sort of moving into robotics and design is it's, and we talked about this earlier um, with sort of um, 
pattern recognition and skeuomorphism and having this sort of mental model and sort of being able to, to map one mental model from one thing over to another thing so that's easy for a human to understand, totally. right? Now, for me, it was really interesting because generative design for architecture and robotics, which are so different, totally, are actually the same exact mental model. That's super interesting. And that's generating Cartesian planes in a three-dimensional space. So I was basically able to have a Just robot... Really slid into this comfortably. Like it was a very familiar space for you. Right, exactly. So in a few days, I have you know one of these giant ABB. This was like a 15-foot robot. Um, that has a 250 kilogram payload um, just jamming away with full control over this thing. And it was a weird, it was like, it was a, such a weird phenomenon to have that mental model map because it, like, it was like I had this just direct knowledge transfer. Yeah. Um, it was almost like somebody just like uploaded the knowledge to my brain without having to do the work. It just was done in a different way, you know. Um, so, and I think the really interesting thing about robotics and digital tools is robotics are sort of this bridge from the digital world into the physical world. Yeah. Right? And robotics and fabrication, that's, that's what they do. They take our, our digital things that we create in space um, and they, they make them real. Yeah. And um, super thrilling. Absolutely. And so I think when, when you see what you've designed in that 3D space, and, and, I, know, and I'm, I know you as an industrial designer, being able to see something go from sketch and then all of a sudden you're holding it in your hands. Yeah, sketch to like CAD model 3D rendering. So convincing photograph, digital photograph it on a computer screen is thrilling enough, but then seeing it go from there to the actual physical object is amazing. Absolutely. Um, and um, that's basically where we are now, but I was, I was studying in the School of Architecture, but I was really interested in fine art. Um, and I was really interested at, uh, I was really interested in sort of exploring um, digital fabrication, the visual arts, um, and sort of uh, algorithmic art um, from sort of an individual perspective. And so what I was doing was actually making fine art in this architecture class and then running over to the fine art school and then yeah. doing critiques over there. Um, so I'd bring my stuff over there, show my videos over there, let them tear it to pieces. Yep. You know, who's this kid with the robot, you know, bringing this stuff over here is pretty interesting. Um, but the work got better through these critiques, and, yeah. um, and you know, it was just a ton of fun. And then I, at that point, I really fell in love with generating art. But if, if you look at my work, it still has very much of a sort of architectural feel to it. Yeah, for sure it does. And, and that, you know, that the is DNA still... Is there. The DNA is absolutely there. Um, and so it has that architectural, rule-based, generative kind of uh, bend to it, but it's also physical, and it's about sort of creating these these sort of abstractions in the digital world and then bringing them back to the physical world. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think the exciting, where I find things really exciting is a lot of the work that I'm, I'm doing right now with robotics is it's, it's they're, they're really based in abstract representations of the natural world. So taking yeah, things from sure. nature, right, and then abstracting them, simplifying them, and then, um, and then sort of creating them. But it's, there's almost this really interesting loop where it's all about sort of so you take a rule system from the natural world and you bring it into the digital world via physics simulations and algorithms, right? So physics, physics simulations are so interesting, right? Because they're, yeah. they're really just, they're mimicking the true laws of physics in the right. computer. And it's like so fascinating to see these. And I think we're seeing more of these in sort of animations coming out as these tools are progressing. But it's sort of about, so you're taking this real world thing, you're bringing it into the computer, you're sort of manipulating it, abstracting it, 
and creating the story about mm -hmm. what that thing represents, and then you bring it back into the real world via robotics. Yeah. So it's sort of nature back, you know, real world back to real world, but there's sort of like this loop of manipulation. And I mean, and that stuff is really cool and, and clearly very obvious in your work. The other thing I really like about it too is, is uh, well, and this is what has drawn me to generative art, but also uh, machining, 3D printing, uh, plotting. I play with a lot of those machines and they're just so fun to watch and they're, right. they're performative in their, in their craft. Like it's, these robots are making something that you dreamt up and then they execute it and it's super, it, it's very addicting. I've lost hours of productivity just they, watching these machines work, but your machine and the things that you program take it to another level. Like it's so fun watching. Um, and I, I'll, we'll link people to be able to watch your videos or to see, excuse me, examples of your work. But it's, um, but it's really cool that you have this box that is distributing nails, which is its own feat of engineering, watching um, this, you know, these, I don't, what would you call it, the, the wheel that spins to sort the nails and push that out? Would, yeah, is there a name a, for that? Yeah it's, a, yeah, it's a vibratory feeder. Vibratory feeder, thank you. Um, which you, you can see in a lot of different manufacturing, but it's really cool seeing it in this context. And it, you know, spitting out each nail and the robot delicately and gingerly and almost like a, a, a performative dance picking up the nail and then pushing it through the canvas or the, or the substrate to create your piece. It's, it's a dance and it's a really elegant one. Absolutely. And I, I, I love the, where, how you're talking about the performative aspect because it's such a big part of it. Um, some people ask me with this, this nail art. Um, so, so what I'm doing is I'm generating art um, with a large set of nails. So uh, my largest piece has been 10,000 nails. So the robot's picking up one at a time and, I've had some people, usually sort of more engineering-minded people, go, well, how come you don't just like strap a nail gun yeah. to the end of the robot and have it sort of just like run through and jam this thing in there and like fully optimize it, right? Right, to be like the fastest and you know, and that's not what it's about. There is that performative aspect, mm -hmm. right? It's about sort of um, these two machines right now, and these two machines are working together to create yeah. this thing. And there's also this bridge we talked about sort of humans have these patterns, right? We talked about sort of the, the self-driving car that sort of has that certain pattern that makes us comfortable around it. Right. And to have sort of uh, machines creating art, there's a, a little bit of the bridge that I want to create for the viewer where um, it's, it's a machine making art, but it's still somewhat similar to a human being in the sense that it is going over and picking this thing up. Right. You know, there is sort of this performative aspect of, a robot, you know, building something. Um, and so to me, it's, it's um, some of these systems may not be sort of the most efficient, right. but there is that performance aspect. Not the objective. Of, it's not the objective, right? And so it's sort of like there's this handshake between two machines. Yeah. And you. Um, right. Being one of the machines. Absolutely. <laughs> one of the many machines involved in this process. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I love that mode of thinking and it's incredibly fun to watch and it's incredibly fun to see the results um what's the objective here where are you going from here well i think the honest truth is i'm having a ton of fun <laughs> that's know? right that's good and, and it's it's just it's that feeling when you get um when you when you sort of have this medium where you get to continuously learn continuously explore uh, creating something that people really enjoy, yeah, um, I think 
you know, I, I mean, I've been a designer, you know, I've done UX, I've done architecture, I've done industrial design, I've done a lot of different facets of design, much like yourself. Um, and there's something about the satisfaction of real people enjoying what you create yeah. that makes it so fulfilling. Like you create amazing products that people use, right? And, and like that has to just feel so rad, right? For sure. When somebody's picking this thing up and using it. And to me, um, the, the effect of sort of sharing, sharing these works with people um, is just absolutely drives me. And I think that there's just so many parameters to just explore. Yeah. Um, and there is a little bit of this sort of, um, we talked about kind of that we were chatting earlier about, it's kind of, um, there's the individual sport aspect. Yeah. Which I, I kind of like from the fine art perspective. That's just kind of a ton of fun. A ton of fun. It's kind of me battling me. Totally. Every day. 100%. And, and just getting into that sort of mindset and kind of attacking it. Um, but really the vision, I'll, I'll explain my, my vision and where this is going. So the ultimate goal, what I want to do is create a sort of a new experience for um, for purchasing art. Oh, really? Um, and Okay, so let's back up for one second before you dive into that, because I mm -hmm. think it's so interesting. I mean, what we're talking about here, if I had to choose an overall theme, I mean, it goes back to me, like, talking about, I didn't want to get in creative arts because it's, those people are bums. I thought artists were bums. And so design was like a weird way of me being able to justify my creative tendencies in, in creating value um, through solving problems. And that's their very American and very capitalistic ideas that, oh, I can create value by solving problems and that which makes me, my human life worth living. But there's a huge push away from that for me personally. And I can see it with you. You've, you come from a very pragmatic architectural design background and here you are doing something that's so just expressive. And it's just so bum art, man. It's hippie, useless art. These nails don't function. They don't, they're not curing cancer. They're not doing anything. They're just being beautiful and being, uh, and hopefully whatever, I don't know, you, we can debate all day about like what art is supposed to do and what it's not supposed to do, who's in, right. whose job it is to interpret it. Is it yours or the viewers? And we get talking about art. But I think we're both kind. And I think this is why, the second we met, we connected, is one, we have the background of the generative art, we appreciate machines, and then try to shoehorn engineering into our process as much as possible. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there, but also I think it was, we're both people that have solved a lot of problems, and now I think we kind of both, and disagree with me if you want, mm -hmm. but I think we both kind of realized that all these problems we solved weren't that big of deals anyway, and really right. like getting down to it, making something that someone enjoys, or making something that we enjoy, is a way bigger deal than my naive little 20-year-old mind thought it would be. Right. It's like there's it's, so little of that. And that's actually, in a lot of ways, more important than the yeah. load-bearing bridges that we thought we were building before. Right. And something, there's a saying, too, where uh, if you, sometimes if you can please yourself, you can please others. Totally. Right. Totally. Sing your song, other people will listen. Right. And it's, it's, it, I think it's really true. And it's, it's almost like I had to get over myself to uh, appreciate the value I actually had to offer and just being purely exp expressive. Right. Um, and I think same with you. Yeah. But so now the, our, our, the irony of that is that that's all I was thinking as you were talking. Yeah. And then you immediately was like, so now I want to solve the problem of purchasing art. Yeah. So you so brought it back to the, the real pragmatic. You found a problem yeah. that you want to solve. Talk to me more about that. Yeah. So, and, and this is not necessarily solving a problem. This is just um, sort of a, a vision and an experience that I'm just very interested in, in, in creating. Um, there's a lot of reasons why, and we can, we can get into yeah, that. Yeah, tell me what bit. that means. Yeah, so 
the, my, my ultimate vision essentially is, is um, to sort of change the um, experience of uh, purchasing art where machines are creating it. And the sort of the ultimate vision is think Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Right? Oh, But shit. with robots making art. So okay. the idea is you're sort of entering this facility, right? You may have purchased art and you're sort of watching your art become fabricated, but the, but the process becomes more and more advanced. So like right now, right, we have two machines. There's a nail feeder that's basically spitting out nails. The robot goes over, picks it up, and, and places it into a canvas. So imagine sort of the next iteration of that will be sort of a pneumatically controlled uh, uh, spray paint, right. where basically can move it over and uh, numerically sort of paint every nail a specific color within some sort of gradient set. Um, and then, and then place it in. So you could imagine these things starting to build, right, where this sort of material is being manipulated um, and sort of changed and then uh, becomes sort of a part of this uh, bigger picture piece of art and you're watching this and you're ex sort of experiencing this thing happening um, in real time and then, and, and it's sort of creating that story for um, the, uh, the viewer in real time and then they walk out with their sort of their product. Dude, so this is so funny because I meant to show you earlier you asked about the glasses frames that I'm wearing um, Gentle Monster and mm -hmm. I wanted to show you the videos that I've taken from inside the retail shops of Gentle Monster so if anybody if you have a chance to go to one of these retail shops I think there's one in LA I'm guessing there's one in New York I know there's a couple in Korea where I first encountered them but they are I would say 90% museum exhibition and only 10% iframe store mm -hmm. um and i got i took a bunch of videos because it just blew my mind it was one of the most beautiful places i've been in um and each store was so different and i've gone to three of them now and they're just mind-blowing but one of the stores had these uh massive kinetic structures okay in them and they're very like otherworldly kinetic they're made from sticks and sand and and rocks and rope and gears and bamboo, and they just, they were these huge, and they looked like what might be in a, almost like a, a loom from Star Wars or something, right. like Ewoks constructed this thing in the jungle. Um, and there was no actual literal output of it, it was just, it, were, it was performative. It, these uh -huh. things were moving to be kinetic and to kind of suggest a purpose, even though there wasn't one, which I right. thought was, you know, that can be beautiful in itself. But it immediately made me wonder, if, like, but what if it did have a purpose? What if these things were the machines that were making the frames? You know, then we could sell these frames. Uh, and designers are always thinking about the output that is, is sellable. But that's the reality of the world we live in. Get over it. Um, right. No, I was just thinking, like, these things should be making it. And th right. that was, like, my big epiphany coming back from Korea after seeing these police places. Like, I would love. I mean, as and. That's the point. Gentle Monster understands that uh, retail and the fundamental role of retail for consumers is is changing. You got to it's you know there's got to be a reason to come in our store instead of buying on Amazon. Right. And it would be so amazing to be able to go to a store that is also actually just like a performative factory that is constructing your clothes, your hats, your glasses. And if there is a way to, particularly interesting to me, if there was a way to kind of timestamp these things coming out. So mm -hmm. not only does it, did this crazy-ass Ewok kinetic sculpture loom out 
or weave a t-shirt for you, but it was also, you know, based on how it was constructed, that it was number 3,000 of a run of 4,000 or was made on this day at this time. And it's something integrated. Maybe it's, maybe the dye just wears out over time. So the first one was a bright, bright indigo blue. Right. But towards the end, it gets a faded white and that kind of time stamps. What shirt, which part of the run you got to participate in. But we're living in a, we're living in a post-scarcity economy, right? Like where scarcity no longer really exists. We solved world hunger. Nobody noticed. Right. Like we, <laughs> we know, but like we as human beings are just wired to value scarcity still, even though it doesn't really exist. You can right. get all the, like when my parents were growing up, the amount of t-shirts you owned was kind of a measure of your prosperity, you know, but nowadays like everybody can have pretty much infinite unique low or H&M t-shirts on a McDonald's salary. Like we have right. abundance. And so we keep chasing after the scarcity, even though it doesn't fiction, it's not really a reality. And it's funny for, if you want to sell some shit, one of the first tasks these days is to try to convey scarcity. Right. Um, either in completely bogus ways, but as a designer that values integrity, I prefer it be an authentic way. I prefer the scarcity be embedded in a really interesting, um, compelling and artistic way and having like, you know, manufacturing, bringing manufacturing, forget bringing manufacturing over from China to the U S bring the manufacturing into individual stores. Right. That would be super compelling and is a great excuse to come into my store instead of buying on Amazon. Absolutely. And when you can learn, I think about the sort of the product that you're, that you're purchasing and how it was made in that story. It's just so compelling and it's so interesting. So now all we need is an investor. So if you are listening to this <laughs> and you want to invest in uh, me and Charles uh, busting into this and like totally overhauling and starting a revolution, just give us a call. Yeah, you, know where to find, you know where to find us. We're ready. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting too, you're talking about, um, I, I think the same thing holds true we're seeing right now with, with music, um, right? So music Musicians really aren't making. Yeah, how is that? They're just they're, well. They're not really making money off of, um, you know, CD sales, right? Album right. sales anymore, um, and they're not making that much money off of streaming. Some do, a very select few do, and so there's been sort of this new emergence of live music, right? Yeah. And these sort of shows, um, and everything that's sort of put into those shows, and it's almost like you're going back to almost like the Broadway days. Totally. Right, where it's, there's these amazing sort of uh, sets, and um, I don't know if you saw the uh, Kanye West Yeezus oh, tour. Oh, yeah, that was amazing. Incredible. And that was done by, by Rem Koolhaas yep. um, with uh, OMA, the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, which yeah, is amazing architecture. one of the greatest architecture firms in the world. Um, and they worked on this set design and this whole sort of experience, right, for, for going to this... Um, going to see this sort of uh, the tour, right? And I'm sure most people have seen it, but for those who haven't, it's, it's, he was, the stage was floating above, suspended that, above Okay, so that's actually audience. a different one. It's a different one. But that one's amazing as well, right? But you see a theme with his work. That was the Life of Pablo tour. Oh, that's right, sorry, that was yeah. Pablo. Yeah, and I think that was S. Selvin, maybe, who did the lighting stage. Oh, see, I, I've been having maybe. this mixed up for a while. I thought that was Cool House. Yeah, but Cool House, yeah, Cool House did uh, the, the Yeezus tour with the sort of like the mountains, these crazy sort of uh, right. architectural mountains and um, they had, I think, some projection mapping and some interesting stuff. And 
um, you know, and, and um, it's really interesting, like, um, you know, uh, Madison Square Garden yep. uh, acquired Obscura Digital. Oh, really? Yeah, and so, I th you know, the, I think you can sort of do the math on what's brewing there, right, where they're going to be sort of rethinking like, what is that kind of experience of going to a show. Yeah. And now it's just, to your exact point, there's so much weight to the sort of the, the, the performance aspect. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just going to get it on Amazon. And it comes down to scarcity again. It's because mm -hmm. the things, and I, I keep coining this term or trying to coin it and see if it catches, but I call them non-transformative um, experiences. The idea that I can't, wait, that's a horrible way of saying it. Maybe that's why it's not catching us. It doesn't actually make sense. Tra oh, non-transferable. Non-transferable experiences. Right. That makes way more sense. Um, and it's the idea that there's so many things that now are just easy to transfer information, data, things that can be written, things that can be taken a good, a decent picture of. We all have now have access to it. Like, I don't even feel like I live in San Francisco. I don't feel like I ever even have to look over at the Golden Gate Bridge because so many pictures of it pop up on my newsfeed on my right. Instagram. Like I've seen it a million times. Right. That is a transferable experience. Like I can take a picture of this and I can share it. And now I, I have assimilated that. With so many things that are transferable, the really scarce things are the non-transferable. Right. And going to a show is one of those. Now that we all have infinite access, anybody with a $10 Spotify account can listen to all of the music. Right. We have all of the music. When I was younger, when albums came out, it was a huge deal. And we'd, we, we would budget with poor you know, high school kids. We would like scrape together the money. Knowing that an album was coming out, I had to like, I'd save for that album. I wouldn't buy this album, I'd buy that one. Right. You know, I had to make that choice. Um, it's not like that anymore. Like, I have all the records. Now it's like, yeah, now all of a sudden the going to see these, mu these concerts just are so much more meaningful. Like, it's not about owning that record. It's about, I actually saw that tour, which is, has always been the case. It's just, a, it's just a shift more in that direction. Like concerts were always a thing. I always loved seeing shows, but now they just are more meaningful now in this landscape. Absolutely, and it's, it's really exciting, I think, when musicians have that bar of a performance. Totally. Um, it makes, you know, it, it makes the sort of anticipation, the anticipation of the album that much more exciting. Yeah, it's, it's holistic. Right. You know, there's, a, there's an aesthetic for the set that speaks to the album. There's an aesthetic to the, the merchandise. There's, it's, it's a whole package now in ways that it wasn't in the past. Like in the music I used to listen to when I was a kid, like it's just, you know, four musicians and a drummer standing right. on stage and there's something about that and there's nothing that's never going to go away. Right. Um, hopefully not, but yeah, I, there's something like from top to bottom, these Kanye tours are just full experiences, artistic sensory overload. Right. Um, and they have to be. That's how they keep up. That's how they compete. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. On that note, I was I was actually listening to an interview with him, and um, they were talking about fashion. And right. like, so, you know, tell me about you and fashion, and why you're so interested in fashion. And um, he, it was interesting. He actually related it back to the concerts. And he said, when you go to a concert, right, or you go to like Disneyland, for example, and you go through that experience, and then you come out at the gift shop at the end. Right. He's like, that T-shirt 
that you hold, I want that to be the best T-shirt you've ever held in your life. <laughs> and so he says, you know, that's why I went into fashion, right? Um, that's like part of his sort of, ex that's part of his experience of going to a show is like the merch. Yeah. You know, like the tour merch. Um, and I, I just think it's super interesting to, and, and like I went to the, the Life of Pablo tour here in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And they, they postponed the show for almost two hours because the entire stadium at Oracle was in line to buy merch. No way. It was crazy. I mean, it was just looping around the entire, and there were people that came to buy merch that weren't even going to the show waiting outside, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, and interesting enough, actually, the merch was like, I think purposely like kind of crappy. Really? You know, like it was like Gildan like, t-shirts and yeah, and just you know stuff where like you wash it and it's just gonna like totally shrink up. Where, um, you know, and I, I there it was may cool be a, as hell. There, it was super cool. Yeah, <laughs> and we definitely got in like. Well, that's the thing. Right. That's, I mean, that's the thing about uh, about like apparel these days, particularly streetwear. And I'm I'm I mean I'm more of a fashion designer than I am an industrial designer at this point. Um, but there's definitely and, and it's temporary. It's a phase, but like quality is very not part of the discussion in streetwear. Right. Um, I mean, it's talked about, but it's such a side note. It's more about the artificial scarcity. It's more about the fact that, you know, this is one of many mm -hmm. um, T-shirts that are the collaboration between Virgil and Takashi Murakami. And, mm -hmm. you know, this was screen printed at an event and all that stuff. That's very much what it's about. Right. Um, and quality is secondary. Like, I mean, almost it's to the point that it's not because we don't care about quality, but it's because everything is basically good enough at this point. Right. <laughs> you know, all the cheapest, cheapest stuff is like, yeah, that's good enough. Right. We don't, just don't have to worry about it. It just becomes, meanwhile, the social currency that's embedded in these things is really rare, is really difficult. I mean, everybody's trying to imbue their products with this special collector fever, social currency stuff, and it's not an easy thing to do. Nobody's got the formula figured out except for Kanye. But, um... I think that's good enough time as any to announce that we're coming. Create Consume podcast merch is coming. <laughs> we're right. working on it. And for the similar reason, you know, it's a, um, there's an idea, there's a philosophy, there's a, there's a ride that we want to take people on. And uh, the merch that we're going to put out is, is going to be a part of that. It's going to be authentically uh, fabricated by uh, Charles Robot out of... He's going. The robot is going to orchestrate a army of silkworm spiders that will then loom. I actually don't know. We're we're planning. It's it's a rough it's a rough I, plan. I have some ideas. Oh, Charles got some plans. All right. I got some ideas on the on the on the robotically fabricated merch. All right. So we're we're working on it. And I'm I'm actually dead serious. That was mostly a joke, but it's been in the pipeline. And if you are listening to this, get excited. And I'm you're gonna buy it. And you're gonna love it. Um, but. I mean, it's coming from a place, too, that I think things are just merchy right now in streetwear. Right. They're just right. merchy. Like, someone pointed this out to me, and I think it's 100% true, that, like, clothes have gone from being about clothes, and they've been, they're now merch for the brand. In the same way that, like, you know, a, a concert t-shirt was hyping the artist, and you wanted to represent, like, oh, I went to this show. Yep. Like, nowadays, that's, like, what, that's the same, like, social function that, like, hats, t-shirts jackets and sneakers are performing for these brands like the brands are now our rock stars right now right. which is really strange to me 
but I'm, I'm I mean I'm sold I'm in yeah <laughs> I'm sucked in as much as anybody else yeah and I think like the tour merch is what's so interesting about it to me is it just tells the story and you get yeah. to kind of like you get to relive the experience and um, so, you know, if I'm wearing a, just like a regular t-shirt or a t-shirt from the show and it's sort of like a conversation starter, you know, I went to that show too. And, or you look at it and then you sort totally. of get to replay those memories back in your head of that experience. And you know what a really important thing is it's so much of a time. So as a designer and as an architect, I think you agree. And as someone who's nerds out in typography and stuff, uh, there's so much of a push to become timeless. Right. right? And that's actually kind of, dare I say it, the disease that the tech world is succumb to right now is that they try to make everything so timeless that's like an enviable quality to have and i get it there's reasons for it i i've been a very minimalist designer at points in my career um i think there's reasons for that if for one thing you it is very accessible it allows for like if you're trying to sell 30 million iphones which you need to do to make your investment worth it it better be timeless it better be which is also shorthand for it better not be confrontational or offensive it, be, mm-hmm. it better be very non-offensive it better be, have a wide base of appeal but what i love about fashion and merch and this merchy time that we're having in streetwear is it, it fuck all that it just yeah. is like no we're going to be of the time it's going to be loud it's going to be weird it's not going to make sense a year from now i promise right. that almost seems to be the implicit promise of this stuff and there's something so liberating and freeing about that and i think and this is something we talk a lot about um, with my designer friends and with the people in, and we're, we're in Silicon Valley designers. If tech wants to go to the next level, it has to learn how to understand that. Right. It has to learn to, to be like, embrace the idea of like, let's be of a time, let's be temporary, let's be gadgety. I think gadgets are actually the best fashion tech items. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, that category barely exists now. Let's embrace that. Let's bring back the gadgets. But that's that's what needs to happen. And I think that's what... Um, that's really the value that these that designers can offer is be these kind of cultural uh, trend making time creators, moment creators, and that's what that that's what's next. We got to do it. It's up to us. It's up to us, Charles. We're the guys. No, I'm I'm with it. It's it's like so beautifully put. I'm trying to think of how I can add to that, but I think <laughs> you just kind of nailed it. And I think. Uh, you know, really, it's like creating culture. Yeah. Right. And um, there's just something about you know, there's there's sort of the traditional tech route where you're just you're sort of kind of solving this problem. And I think there's something interesting there, but there's nothing more beautiful than culture. Yeah. It's right? a narrative. It's how we tell the story of our of our of our tribes or our species. And those stories way outlast all the problems that we've solved. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the truly sort of exciting place to be. And there's so much value to be created there. Like, it's interesting. Like, I think, um, you know, like the Beats by Dre acquisition. Yeah, yeah. I remember right? the whole Where, saga. Right. And yeah, and, and it's really, um, the product isn't great. No. Um, but what they were able to sort of figure out is their kind of place, like within culture, where they had sort of like the athletes coming out and practicing, like wearing the beats. And they had, um, you know, the, the different music, musicians sort of representing them. And they just had yeah. this like whole kind of vibe yeah. to it that was kind of spearheaded by, you know, Dr. Dre and that whole following. And it was really scoffed at too. That mm-hmm. was the thing that was frustrating as an observer is how much 
ridicule that got. And I right. get it. I get mm-hmm. it. It's like, oh, people are hyping these things, but they're actually shitty quality and they're, they're not that good. But like, I think it's people missing the point. Absolutely. And I think that's, the, that's where, you know, I think Apple saw the value, like that value in the culture behind the product. Yeah. Right? So I think that's exactly kind of the point we're making is it's not necessarily just solving the, the problem, but when you can sort of create a vibe and a culture around a product. Get an audience. Like audience, people can yeah. scoff all they want, but if you're scoffing at the fact that something has gained traction and you do not understand why, you're the dummy, right? right? You know, it's so easy to scoff. I mean, trust me, I, I have that impulse. I end up going to trade shows and festivals um, and a lot of them that I go to, the scoff reflex is super strong, man. <laughs> like you just get there like, oh my gosh, these kids are so full of shit. Like they're just, ugh. But I have to like, push that down right and realize okay something's happening here and if i don't understand it I'm why am i here yeah <laughs> like i that's i'm here to get that yeah um and i think it's an interesting point like, i find i find the youth to be super interesting um <laughs> honestly i really did, do did we just get old the second like, you said that right? we find the youth <laughs> interesting i'm like did, i just got old well you know like, I'm, it I'm just happened i'm i'm 33 years old and one of my, like on. my let me let me alleviate this real yeah. quick. Tiff, can you, can you come here and Instagram us? Because we're we're young and hip. <laughs> Do it from the top of the loft so we uh, so we look super good, and we can get a full. Yeah, I trust you. You're good at angles. Okay, so you're talking about us being old. What was that about? Yeah. So I mean. Really, really, what the point I wanted to make though is, I think there's just something really beautiful about like young energy. Oh yeah, you okay. know, obviously, yeah, like, it sounds good. And yeah, my like my biggest nightmare is being that sort of uh, older person that's yeah, just like scoffing at the youth because I don't fully understand. Yeah, it. and just like dismissing, dismissing it right when um, you know everything that we uh, you know that we see. It's just that there's something about the youth and how they can take risks. Yeah, right and. We talk about sort of like fashion is all about like you can take these big bold risks because it can be sort of like it's going to be gone the next yeah. year and there's so much excitement there and I think there's something about the youth and the energy of the youth and they're so fearless yeah and that's why sometimes the fuck also, it attitude yeah and they, and it's so like pulverizing sometimes and it's Absolutely. easy to to just be like well this is terrible and honestly some of it is terrible right but there's also a lot of really exciting things and 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 it it sort of evokes um, emotion so. I, I love trying to kind of stay, stay up on like what's new and what's happening sort of and, and seeing what kind of the youth are doing. And, 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 and that's 100% ties into what I was saying earlier is that there's the problem, the reason why tech and all these things I think are losing uh, our attention or our interest or whatever because they don't have any of that polarizing fuck it attitude. And they don't have it for, for real reasons the financial constraint. You know, the investment cost and the risk associated is what limits companies' willingness to do that. So I think there's a real, I think there's a real uh, imperative for people like us that are boots to the ground in the industry is to do everything we can to, one, push for those risks even when it's uncomfortable, but also we're going to see it. It's just if we can reduce the barriers to entry, reduce the cost, um, do things in a cheap, mobile way. Mm-hmm we can get more exciting, which is what I love about your side hustle. And I, I don't know how much you wanted to talk about your side hustle at all, but I mean, you're doing that, 
with your side hustle. You're, you're, you're finding ways to 3D print enclosures when you could be injection molding them, um, at least in the start, to try things and figure things out. Um, I think we, are, we have a responsibility to do that mm -hmm. as, as designers and business owners. So, yeah, there's a, re there, there's a lot of reasons I invited you to be on here. Um, and that's, that's just one of the many. But, yeah, I think it, I think it is an exciting time, um, even though we, I think we started this by talking about how freaking boring the tech world has gotten. But I think that's just, that is just the calm before the storm. Right. Hopefully. Right. Whether it's about tech or whether it's about anything well, else. Well, I love what you just said, too, like the, the, you just mentioned the barrier to entry. And I think that's like a really important kind of topic when we discuss creating anything. It's sort of like the tools we have and the barrier to entry to create right now. Yeah. It's just amazing. Like you can have a, you know, uh, you know, a, a mirrorless camera that can oh, shoot totally. at a high frame rate and you can create very like cinematic um, sort of results with something that's just kind of like this prosumer entry level thing or, or music, right? You can record oh, yeah. anywhere. Um, and sort of just like the tools at our disposal to, to make. Uh, it's just such, like, what an exciting time, yeah, you know? Well, and that's the thing is it's a really exciting time as far as creation goes. So if you're a guy making, you know, movies, short films, uh, records, if you want to DJ, if you want to start a podcast, if you even want to have a robot in your living room, there's never been a better time. But, and then, and then for, but the, dist the bottleneck is actually on the distribution side for some things. If you're a comedian, distribution's actually pretty easy right now. Twitter, YouTube, you can get yourself out there. If you're a writer, um, you can self-publish better than, easier than you've ever done. But when it comes to manufacturing, particularly these hard things, there's, there's a, that bottleneck still really exists. Mm -hmm. um, it's better than it's ever been. But I think that's what, that's what needs to be pushed down to really get out there. Because I think as far as creation goes, we're, I mean, it's, it's intimidating to be a part of this uh, generation of creators because people are just creating such amazing stuff. Right. It's just getting it into our lives is the hard, is the trickier part. Which is, I mean, it's a nice problem to have. But uh, I don't know how, I don't know how we're going to fix that, but I, I definitely feel like, I mean, I feel like we've seen it in the, even in the short time of our career, just like, you know, the tooling costs for like injection molded parts are right. going down. You know, right. like um, my, my ability to uh, call a factory owner and be like, hey, I want to do business. I got a Kickstarter. Right. And they'll, they'll listen to me. That's ridiculous. Crazy. Yeah, crazy. Ridiculous. I mean, I tried to do some of that stuff early on in my career, really early on. And I just got, I, I mean, it was via email or via phone call. Like, I just kind of got laughed at. But now, nowadays, like, um, factories are getting around and be like, oh, my gosh, these Kickstarters are actually something to mess with. And they'll, they'll take a risk on you. Right. So that's I exciting. mean, and then, yeah, and, and I think, yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, like what role does sort of on-demand manufacturing play? Like this concept of having like a 3D printer mm -hmm. and then buying a file. Yeah. Right? Paying for a file. Which nobody's going to do. I thought they would. Yeah. It just I hasn't mean, really panned out that way. Right. I mean, I, I don't think the technology is quite, quite there yet. But, um, I mean, in terms of accessibility... Accessibility and, and, and manufacturing. Um, you know, the, the tough thing is like there's always going to be that 
economies of scale thing. Right, and that's that exactly just gets what we're in talking the way. About. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what we're talking so about. Until you're selling at that volume, it is it is really difficult to get sort of those costs down. Yeah, and that's that's what needs that's the target. That's what we need to change to get things to be more lively, more exciting, uh, more polarizing, and to have the freedom to be polarizing. Right. Um, it's never going to be not risky, but I mean, it's just so worth it. We got to do it, and right. and that's partly why I took a deviation in my to my uh, path to be in fashion and get a front row seat to that, um, to understand these companies that pedal in polarization mm -hmm. and like do things to kind of ruffle feathers and upset yeah. and because that's 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 culture. That's right. what fuels culture. Um, yeah, being well behaved. I see that so much. I see. I see that in your work too. It's it's interesting. I was I was mentioning this to Joe earlier today, and um, Joe and I are similar in a lot of ways, but also very different in a lot of ways. And mm. and um, in one sense, um, I can barely hold a pen. Yeah, you said right? that. You, don't, you not what you said was you, it's not that you can barely hold a pen. You don't like holding pens. I hate holding a pen. You yeah. don't want it's to. It's so avoid awkward. It. It's just so awkward to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's like my 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 Such fingers. Such a millennial. Were, yeah. <laughs> Ew, pens. What's a computer? Um, but what if you've seen Joe's work? What I mean, what he can do though, um, and this is I think so amazing as an industrial designer and having this like you have this mix between industrial design and fashion. But what you can do with your hand is is you can create a vibe. Yeah. Like you can create sort of this like experiential feeling. You can create sort of like this cultural thing with your hand, you know, and represent that in a in a sketch. And I think that's super powerful and I think that's where products become like really exciting yeah right? um, I think that's exactly what you're sort of attacking is this sort of like this fat the fa fashion world has always had that they have that vibe they have that yeah. just there's like an essence behind um, sort of like yeah and the challenge I mean even in fashion where the constraints are low and risks are more allowed um, going from that really emotive expressive sketch that tells a story in a stroke then to prototype, then to something that needs to go to the market, then needs to go through all the sales meetings and get approval to get to the shelves. By the time it gets to the shelves, a lot of that emotion and that and that vibe have been washed off of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's constantly a challenge to get that vibe to survive as long as possible. Um, but that's the game. That is the game. We need to constantly be pushing to get better at it. And we need to get... I really appreciate the compliment. It means a lot. Um, that is something I try to do. I try to have lots of vibes in my quiver, um, not get stuck telling one story over and over again. And that's, that's a challenging thing. So I appreciate it being noticed. It's super beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think, uh, this has gone pretty well. Yeah, this is a ton of fun. Let's do this again. I really want to. We should just do it all the time. You yeah. should leave my microphone and all these chairs on your robot. Yeah. My robot's name is Uma. If anyone's wondering. Oh, I didn't know your robot was named Uma. Uma, yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining me, Charles, and Uma uh, for this podcast. Where can people find you? Um, yeah, so you can find me on uh, Instagram, Aweda, A-W-E-I-D-A, -E um, or just my uh, website, which is uh, C-K-A.co. Um, those are just my initials, Charles Kareem Aweda. I didn't know Kareem was your real name. Yep. Uma Kareem. Yeah. All right, cool. And if, uh, if people don't remember that, they can come to my Insta and they'll find you through there. You're all over my Insta nowadays. Love it. So That's what I want to be. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks, everyone.